give a warm welcome to General Alexander. Give a warm welcome to General Alexander. So does the NSA really keep a file on everyone? So many things you could say are funny, but I think this requires a very serious answer. First, no, we don't. Absolutely not. And anybody who would tell you that we're keeping files or dossiers on the American people, no, that's not true. And I will tell you that those who would want to weave the story that we have millions or hundreds of millions of dossiers on people is absolutely false. That's the first time I can remember not being wiretapped. <laughs> okay, well, it's really a great honor to be back, and it's uh, really one of the greatest pleasures of my life to be on stage with Laura, who is one of the most fearless, fantastic journalists. And we are here today to tell you a few things. Um, I am an American by birth and uh, post-nationalist, I suppose, by an accident of history. So I'm here now working as a journalist, and Laura is working as a journalist, and I'll let her introduce herself. So um, I've been uh, working the last years trying to document the war on terror and, and to understand it from a human perspective and how we can understand it differently if we understand its impact on people. And uh, today, what Jake and I wanted to do is to talk about how the, the narratives that, we, that we've been told are false and how we can construct new narratives that are based on objective facts. I think in some ways, some of the things we are saying will be preaching to the choir, because it is through this community that we have, in fact, found some of the truths that we will talk about today. And the CCC, um, to me, is like home. So. And so if it wasn't for the CCC and your material support, I don't believe that it would be possible for us to be here today. So thank you all very much for the large conspiracy that the German people and the international community have brought. We have just now simultaneously published on Der Spiegel's website two very large stories which we think will be of great interest, which we will take a little bit of time to explain. But if you go to spiegel.de, you will see uh, two stories. One is about cryptography, and one is about the CIA, and about JPEL and NATO. And this is very important, these stories being published at the same time. We very much want to thank Der Spiegel and the colleagues who are in this room, Andy Muller-Magoon, Aaron Gibson, and a number of other people, Marcel Rosenbach and Holger Stark. We, as some background, have been working on these stories really for a long time. The crypto story, I would say, 
It's something we've wanted to do for almost a year and a half, if not more. And really, if you think about the investigations in the cypherpunks movement, we've really wanted to have some of these answers for about 15 or 20 years. Um, some of the answers are good and some of the answers are not so fantastic. I guess it depends on where you stand. But we hope that by bringing this to you, that it is really in the public interest and that the public here is interested and that you will take it to other places, that you will really take action based on what you see, whether it's judicial action, whether it's civil disobedience, whether it's FOIAs, whether it's something else, who knows? We hope that you will feel empowered by the end of this talk. And I'd just like to say that um, if anyone wants to open up their laptops and look at some of the documents that we published, we won't be offended at all. In fact, we'll be happy. I think it will contribute to um, your experience in the talk today. Great. Spiegel.de slash international. And for everyone who can't be here streaming, remember if the stream cuts out and you never see us again, it was murder. <laughs> So um, one of the ways that, um, that the war on terror works and the way that war works in general is, is how people are dehumanized and reduced to numbers. Uh, this is um, a short video that I filmed about Guantanamo. That was a video that, um, that I made about a, a prisoner, a former prisoner at Guantanamo. His name was Adnan Latif. Uh, he was uh, sent to Guantanamo in 2012. And this is how he came home. He was on hunger strike for, for uh, many years um, before, he, before he died. And when I, what was most shocking to me is that the, watching what happens when he returns home and that he's listed as a number and that his family had to witness that, that this was a person who they were seeing for the first time in many years who was reduced to a number. Um, so today what we're publishing um, with, with Der Spiegel is looking at how that process works and it involves um, NATO's JPEL kill list that is being used in Afghanistan to target people for, for, um, for targeted killings. Um, we're publishing along that some narratives that, um, of particular people who are on the kill list. Um, one particular case was, was a man who um, was uh, given the code name um, Object Duty. He uh, was targeted for, for killing or for assassination. Um, a, a British Apache helicopter that was codenamed Ugly 50 was sent to, to kill him. Um, this was on a day that uh, the visibility was poor and they missed him and they shot 
a child and his father. The child was killed immediately. Um, the father was wounded. The helicopter looped back around and killed its target. Right. So part of what we are hoping to do here, just to make it perfectly clear, is to expose information that people say doesn't exist with a couple of goals. And one of those goals, to be very clear about it, even though this, I suppose, tilts me a little bit on the activist side of journalism, is to stop the killing. That is an explicit goal with this publication. The British government and the American government, in various different ways, NATO as well, they say that these kinds of things really don't exist, that they don't happen this way. And they talk about the killing of people in a very, let's say, mechanical fashion. Usually they say this evidence doesn't exist, but the evidence does exist. And in fact, there are lists with names, just endless names. And those people, in various different ways, are graded. They're graded with regard to the political consequence of those people being killed, as well as some very small spreadsheet. And on that spreadsheet, there is a small box, and that box explains their crimes. Next to that, there's a dollar figure for a potential reward, and maybe there's a restriction. Sometimes it says something like, kinetic action prohibited, for example. That's because by default, kinetic action is not prohibited. That is because these are lists of names of people to be found and to be murdered. And so these lists, we have an excerpt of these lists being published today. And the goal of publishing this is to show what needs to be done. So these lists have redactions, and the goal is that Spiegel, along with hopefully others, will help us to continue to work to uncover not only the fate of these people on this list whose names are redacted, but also the fate of people who are not yet on these kinds of lists, maybe to move to a world in which we don't have lists for what I would call assassinations. And that's what Spiegel calls it as well. This is not, as some people would say, a joint prioritized effects list. This is an assassination program. And I think, personally, that it is inappropriate for democratic societies to have them. And when they deny that they have them, we'd like to prove them wrong and publish them. And so that is what we have done today. Now, now an important detail of this is in the story, the very specific story that is told in this Spiegel piece, as Laura mentioned, there was an Apache helicopter, and that helicopter attempted to engage with the so-called legitimate target. And part of what we hope to drive home is this notion of legitimacy and targeting. In this case, there is a value that is assigned to a person, and that value is a number, which includes the number of people who are not the target that can be killed in service of killing that person. That is completely innocent people who are allowed to be killed entirely. And depending on the number, there may be a call back to base or to a higher command. But the number isn't one before they have to make that call. They have discretion. And in this case, a child was killed with a Hellfire missile. And why is that? Because technology mediates this type of killing. And that technology is not as precise as people would say. And so we have today published the storyboard of this objective, objective duty, which is the name, 
D-O-O-D-Y. That storyboard tells this and explains that a child was killed with a Hellfire missile in service of killing someone else. And Laura can explain what this person did to deserve to be killed. I mean, actually, what I, th what I wanted to transition to is looking at actually the fact that, I mean, the, the narrative is that the government or our governments is, are targeting people um, who are suspected of something. And in fact, what we learned is that they're, they're targeting people based on as, as little information as, as, their, as their telephone number or, or voice recognition. And they're using those as methods to, to target and kill people. Um, and one of the things that, that we've learned um, through the, the disclosures by Edward Snowden is that they're targeting people not just in war zones, but uh, internationally. They're targeting us for surveillance all over the world. And, um, and um, this is a, a video of a target. Das ist ein Ingenieur. Ja. Ingenieur, 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 Ingenieur. Ah ja. Ingenieur, Ingenieur. Das. Ja. Das sind Sie. Ja. So what you just saw there was engineers from Stellar. And well, that is a fantastic name for a company that gets compromised. It is important to understand the notion of targeting with regard to why a target considered legitimate in some cases can have this, this notion of collateral damage. Now in the case of Stellar or in the case of Belgacom, which Laura revealed with Der Spiegel, what we learn is that it isn't actually the case that a terrorist is involved with Belgacom or with Stellar. It is that a kind of neo-colonialism is taking place in the digital era, wherein the colonies, the networks that they do not have through coercion of the state or through other surveillance practices, they have to be compromised. And those become targets and they become legitimate targets in theory and in actuality because of its usefulness because of the leverage that it provides against a speculative target someday in the future. That is, these networks become compromised in service of being able to compromise future networks and other people just because they can. They set out to do that. And so Stellar is an example of such a thing. And to be able to confront victims this way, to show them that they are compromised, helps us to understand, helps us to show that in fact we are directly and indirectly impacted by these types of activities. And when we think about this kind of targeting, we have to understand the scale. And the scale is sort of incredible. The budget for targeted exploitation for the NSA, not speaking at all about the GCHQ or the Defense Signals Directorate folks over in Australia, 
There's so much money when you look at the offensive warfare that for 2013 alone, there was $650 million spent on the Genie program. And the Genie program is their offensive cyber war program, as they call it themselves, in which they build backdoors like United Rake and Straight Bazaar and other tools like Reagan, which you know as one of the tools, I hope, that has been used in Belgacom and in other places. So they target places like Stellar and Belgacom, but they also target places like the European Union. In that case, the European Union takes the place of a terrorist. That is, they are the goal. They aren't compromising the European Union's networks just because someone interesting might show up. They are compromising the European Union's networks because the European Union is the equivalent of a terrorist to them and they wish to have leverage and control, because that's what surveillance is in this context. It's exploitation of systems where they leverage access to that system, or whichever systems that they have access to, to get more access, to have more control, either politically or technologically or both, which ties, of course, into economics. Now, in the case of Genie, $650 million is quite a great deal of money. But for 2017, the projected budget for Genie is a billion dollars. This is just the beginning of what we see. And these civilian targets, or these governmental targets that are being targeted in continental Europe, they're not alone. It is actually happening all around the world. And these compromises, they happen in service of mass surveillance. Whenever they don't have the ability to mass surveil a system, they implant systems along the way in order to surveil what goes in and out of them. Systems are even used as what are called diodes. And diodes are essentially another term which we see the Canadians use, operational relay boxes or orbs. Anybody here that used to be a black hat, I know there are no more black hats here, it's all legitimate, but except for that guy in the front. Everybody knows what you use those boxes for. You use them to jump from one network to another network so that when something is traced back, it traces back to that machine. In the case of the Canadian service, they themselves talk about, a couple times a year, compromising as many systems as they can in non-Five Eyes countries in order to ensure that they have as many operational relay boxes as they need for the coming year. These diodes mean that when a system does a thing, it is absolutely not the case that we can say the person who has purchased that system is responsible for it. It is their official doctrine, in fact, to use other people's computers for their hacking. And that's important when we now consider that they have, in 2017, projected a goal of having a billion dollars to do that. When we look at how that balances out with defense, that is not at all balanced, in fact. It is tilted entirely towards offensive warfare. I was wondering how many people in the room have gone online to look at some of the documents that we released? Anyone? Hey, nice. All right. Fantastic. So in the future, that is to say in approximately three weeks, we plan to release, along with some of our colleagues at Spiegel and some other people who are helping out, more information about specific malware, specific cases in which it's used, and details about information sharing with regard to the malware in terms of how it's harvested. We're thinking probably in the second week of January for that malware story. And we wanted to make sure to get it right, and we wanted people to focus on the specifics of the NATO kill lists and to focus on cryptography. We thought, well, you 
people here in the audience would be able to handle all three. The rest of the world just isn't ready for it yet. So we had to take a little bit of a pause. So more of the malware details will be released in about three weeks. Now, for me, one of the things that has, I would say, for my entire adult life been very interesting to me, and before my adult life started, was a system known as Echelon. Anybody here remember that system? That's the guy that built it, <laughs> I would guess. Maybe not, maybe not. Sorry, I don't want to. I'm trying to snitch jacket you there. But uh, <clears throat> I think it's, to me, extremely important to hear about these kinds of things that sound totally crazy, like the CIA torture report, for example. That started out as a conspiracy, and now we know that America's official policy with the CIA was rape, anal rehydration. Those were conspiracy theories which we now know to be facts. So Echelon, the rumor of Echelon, was this notion of planetary surveillance. And of course, it was Duncan Campbell who brought this forward in a European Union report. He, in fact, very clearly outlined the interception capabilities of the US government and others. Now, it is hard to actually imagine planetary surveillance on a scale, let's say, your home and how your home fits into your city and your city, how it fits into a country and the whole world and all of that being monitored. But what we found is that during the crypto wars, we thought that we had won. We thought that we had a way really to change things. We thought that with cryptography, we would be able to change the entire balance, even if something like planetary surveillance were to come about. And so when Duncan Campbell released his reports about Echelon, in the very early 21st century, I think a lot of people weren't as concerned about it as they should have been. And shortly after that, the war on terror really got off to a very, very big start. It turns out that we weren't as concerned as we should have been in the right areas. And we, I think, can say now that the first crypto wars were not won. And in fact, the first crypto wars were probably, if anything, lost, or they're still going on now. If we were to delineate that, and we were to talk about, as an example, the second crypto wars, what we would find is what has actually been happening behind the scenes. And thanks to Edward Snowden, we actually have a great deal of answers that we would probably not have otherwise. Now, Now, it is important to understand that the, the, the context of this is the notion that everyone is suspicious, that we live now in a world of total, absolute surveillance, which sometimes misses a thing here or there. But this is the goal, collect it all. That's General Alexander's notion. When he talks about this notion, for example, about dossiers, it's a trick, it's a rhetorical trick. Because what he means to say is that now dossiers are dynamic and that this information is not stored on lists written down like in, let's say, the 50s. Rather, they're stored in databases that dynamically will generate a list based on a query from an analyst. Give me every person that went to this website at this time. And it, of course, expands. The notion is that somehow this will only be used against terrorists. But what is a terrorist in this case? In some cases, it actually includes people who are merely involved in drugs. And part of that has been published as part of the JPL kill lists. 
That is to say, people who are definitively not terrorists, but who are otherwise interesting targets. So there's a sort of bleed over. And so we see the same thing with surveillance and cryptography. It was for exceptional targets, and now it is for everyone. And so cryptography came as a liberator, and that was the idea. But just as we showed a little bit ago with Stellar, where they targeted engineers specifically to have access to the infrastructure, so too we find that for cryptography, they sabotaged critical infrastructure. We found, in fact, so many different interesting things that it's actually hard to talk about it in only half an hour of time. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to just say, as, as one of the journalists who's been, who's been publishing on the documents, I think one of the most both important stories and the most unsatisfying stories was the Bull Run story that was published by the New York Times and The Guardian and ProPublica, because it did warn us of how the, the NSA was attacking critical infrastructure to make the internet insecure, and yet it didn't tell us any specifics of what they meant by that. And this was something I think that it frustrated many people in the audience. And so, yeah. And so the, the reporting that, that's been, that Jake has been doing along with um, Aaron Gibson and other people. Um, Christian Grutoff there Grutoff, in the audience. Is to dig in and to find out what those specifics are so that we can actually warn people about what is safe and what's not safe in cryptography. So, we have, let's say, a little free time where we're going to talk about this, but I'd like to do some surveys. Who here uses PPTP? Don't laugh at them when they raise their hand. Let them be honest. Who uses it? One guy. Okay, well, good news to this audience. Stop doing that. We're going to tell you why in a second. <laughs> Who here uses IPsec with a pre-shared key? Fantastic. Stop doing that, too. Raise your hand if you use SSH. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> in the documents that we're publishing today, we are showing, in fact, a series of systems that, if we understand them correctly, I wonder if I should say my next sentence. I say this only as myself and not as Laura. I'd be surprised if some buildings weren't burning, frankly. But the NSA claims to have databases for decryption of an attack orchestration for PPTP and IPsec, which is not so surprising at all, but also for SSL and TLS and for SSH. They have specific slides where they talk about the Debian weak number generation. This is not that. From what we can tell, they have separate programs for that. So they, of course, have a way through the cryptographic exploitation services, cryptanalysis exploitation services, to do certain decrypts. Now, they say we stress potential. It seems to be that there's a pattern. And the pattern is things that are done entirely in software, in particular, those things, as long as there is a good random number generator, and especially if it is free software, what we find is that it seems to stand the test of time. That doesn't mean that it always will, because we found a couple of things. One of the things is that we found that they log the ciphertext and that they wait, sometimes to break it with brute force. So we're also revealing today the location of the two large supercomputers, that is, at Oak Ridge National Laboratories and at Fort Meade, for a program called Long Haul. Long Haul, I suppose, as they have named it appropriately, is for their long haul approach. 
combined with things like the massive data repository or the Mission Data Center, the Mission Data Repository in places like Bluffdale, Utah, they plan and do store the ciphertext of an unbelievable number of connections. When you make an SSL TLS connection, the GCHQ keeps statistics. The Canadian CSE keeps statistics. They seem to log metadata about the handshake in terms of TCP IP, but also in terms of SSL and TLS for the actual protocols. That is to say, they store the cryptographic handshakes. And in some cases, for specific selected data, they take the entire flow. Now, we have found claims that are kind of amazing. In the case of Bull Run, um, the New York Times and The Guardian and the rest of the collaborating news organizations have often left out important details. One of the important details, which I find to be the most shocking and upsetting, is that the British alone by 2010, was it? <laughs> had 832 people read into their bull run program. That is, 832 people knew about their backdooring and sabotage of crypto, just in the British service alone. And each of the Five Eyes countries runs a similar program like that, with potentially similar numbers of people read into those programs. They say something like, three people can keep a secret if two are dead. How about 832 Britishmen? I'm not sure that that's a really good bet. And these guys have bet the farm on it. That is to say, they have slides and presentations and intercepts where they decrypt SSL, where they discuss decrypting SSL at a scale starting in the tens of thousands, moving into the hundreds and millions of thousands, or hundreds of thousands and millions, and then into billions, actually. For TLS and SSL, they actually have statistics on the order of billions of all of the major websites that everyone here probably has used at one point or another in their life. So in the case of the Canadian services, they even monitored hockey talk to give you an idea about this. And they talk about it in terms of warranted collection and special source collection. And encrypted traffic indeed does stand out. They have programs like QuickAnt, which is a specific way of interfacing with a program called Flying Pig. Flying Pig is an SSL TLS database. It's a knowledge database. And QuickAnt seems to be what's called a query-focused data set. They try to use that, from what we can tell, for doing low-latency de-anonymization. Some of the documents we're releasing today will explain some of their failures. Now, I think it's important to be cautious about this because they have many compartments for their data. That is to say, they very clearly have ways of keeping secrets even from themselves. But one of the things we found, and that we're publishing today also, is a FISA intercept. And to the best of my knowledge, and I think that this is true, no one has ever published one of these before. So this is the basis for what you would call parallel construction, actually, where they gather intelligence and then they say, whatever you do, don't use this in lawful investigations, don't use this in a court, it's not evidence, but by the way, here it is. So we're publishing one of those today, and we have some, well, moderately good news. In looking at these, what we have found is that they consistently break various different types of encryption. So if you are mailing around a Microsoft.doc document that's password protected, there's a good chance that they send it to long haul using a thing called island transport. And then that, if it can, through brute force, is decrypted. And it is the case that 
When they do this decryption, they send it back and they include the decrypted information in the FISA transcript. They do this for RAR files, they do this for .doc files, they do this for a bunch of different systems. But we don't want to focus on what's broken because the New York Times and the Guardian and other places have already sort of said everything is fucked. We wanted to try to make it a positive talk. <laughs> And so I think Laura here is just going to be able to show you, in fact. If it will play. Just drag it over. Other way. So we wanted to show you, who here has heard about PRISM? Everyone? What does that mean to you? It doesn't mean anything, right? We just know that it's some massive surveillance program. We wanted to show you what one of those PRISM records actually looks like, which in itself is, I think... Sorry. It's okay. It's a rather unexciting document, except for the fact that we get to show it to you, which is great. I think if you Isn't escape for that. Escape out of here? There it is. Hey, FBI, fuck you. <laughs> so I take great pleasure in being able to say that this couldn't have happened without Laura. <laughs> But if you look here, you see SIGAD, US984XN. That's PRISM. And this is your dossier for PRISM. Yeah. And if you're wondering about the redactions, it's all Andy Muller Magoon. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the good news. The FBI regularly lies to the American public and to the rest of the world, and they say they're going dark. What we found in the study of these FISA intercepts is that basically no one uses cryptography. And basically everyone that uses cryptography is broken, except for, well, let's say two things. Thing number one is OTR. Very important to go with it is you'll notice that there's some metadata, and it's just metadata, but as the US government has said in public, they kill people with metadata. So up there you'll see that, I believe this was Yahoo, is that right, Andy? Yeah, I think it could be Gmail, it could be Yahoo, I forget which one this one is. We're releasing, you know, enough for you to figure it out on your own. Hopefully this isn't you, if so, I'm sorry we redacted your information, because if it was me, I wouldn't want it to be redacted. But you'll see that it's a username, IP address, as well as a time and a date. And you'll also see other IP addresses associated with it. Those are used for selector-based surveillance, which, if you haven't been following along at home, it means that they can take that information, put it into other databases, into things like XKeyscore, and pull up other information that will be related. But most importantly here is you see what is essentially a chat log 
as if it had been created on your computer. Now, don't log, it's rude. They did it for you anyway. And what you see is OC, no decrypt available for this OTR encrypted message. In other documents, we see them saying, cryptographic exploitation services, we can't decrypt it. It's off the record. Quite a nice endorsement. And what we have also found is that they do the same thing for PGP. Now, in other cases, they do decrypt the messages. So instead of telling you about everything that's broken, what we wanted to do was to suggest, look at the composition of OTR. Find Ian Goldberg, who's here somewhere. Ask him to review your cryptographic <laughs> protocol. Maybe don't, he's probably already overwhelmed. But Snowden said this in the very beginning. He said, cryptography, when properly implemented, is one of the few things that you can rely upon. And he's right. And we see this, this is the message. These things are not to be used in legal proceedings, and yet here we see them anyway. And what we see is that even there, in the most illegal of settings, essentially, they can't decrypt it. Now, the sad part is that not everyone is using it, but the good news is that when you use it, it appears to work. When you verify the fingerprint, for example. We didn't find evidence of them doing active attacks to do man-in-the-middle attacks, but that's easy to solve. OTR allows you to authenticate. PGP and GNU-PG allow you to verify the fingerprint. We did find evidence of them having databases filled with cryptographic keys that were pilfered from routers and compromising machines. So rotate your keys frequently, use protocols that are ephemeral. They themselves find that they are blinded when you use properly implemented cryptography. So GNU-PG, Werner Koch I think is in the audience, GNU-PG and OTR are two things that actually stop the spies from spying on you with PRISM. Would you mind if I ask for volunteer to give the computers with a So we have some other really good news, and that good news is this. There are, in some of the slides that are being released, a matrix, not the matrix that you were hoping for, <laughs> but we can talk about that program later. <laughs> I'm not even joking, but... <laughs> there are some other things. One of the things that they talk about in this matrix is what's hard and what's easy. And in the case of hard, they describe red phone, and that means Signal, the program by Christine Corbett and Moxie Marlinspike, as catastrophic. They say Tails and Tor, catastrophic. So what that really means is that we now understand some things that they have trouble with and how they will take action to try to sabotage it is clear. They will try to sabotage the random number generators like they did with dual EC, DRBG. They will try to sabotage the platforms. They will try to force companies to be complicit. I think the German word is Gleichschaltung. You're all familiar with that? That is the process that is happening now in America. 
with these crypto programs. That's what PRISM is. PRISM is when companies would like to fight against it, and that's not to call them victims, most of them are willing, this is still what they are forced into. That is the legal regime. And it is when you take responsibility using this strong crypto that you can set that in a different direction. Those companies actually can't really protect you. They are, in fact, secretly, in some cases, and sometimes willingly, complicit in that. And so, if you use Redphone and Signal, if you use something like Tor and GNU-PG with a properly sized key, don't use like a 768-bit RSA key or something stupid like that. If you use OTR, if you use jabber.ccc.de, by that guy who runs that a beer, by the way, if you use these things in concert together, you blind them. So this is the good news, and the documents that support this are online. We have some other bad news, though. There exists a program which they call Tundra. Tundra, it's not exactly clear what the details are, but they say that they have a handful of cryptoanalytic attacks on AES. Obviously, they can't break AES, or they would be able to break OTR. But what it suggests is that they have a conflict of interest, where they're both supposed to protect our information and, of course, to exploit it if they have attacks against AES, much like if they have attacks against SSH, as they claim in the Caprios database in that program, then it shows that conflict of interest runs very deep against our critical infrastructure, against the most important systems that exist to protect our data. And it shows a sort of hegemonic arrogance, and that arrogance is to suggest that they'll always be on top. I had the misfortune of meeting General Alexander quite recently in Germany, and after failing to have him arrested, which was a funny story in itself, um, I asked him what, what he thought he was doing. Another person there stood up and said, what about who comes after you next? And he didn't quite understand the question, but his answer was pretty eerie. He said, nobody comes after us next. Thousand-year Reich. That is exactly what he was saying. And when I confronted him about accountability for things like kill lists and crypto, he said that he was just following orders, literally. <laughs> so, now we know what blinds them, and we understand what they do with things when they are not blinded. Their politics include assassinations, but it doesn't just end there. It includes torture, it includes kidnapping, it includes buying people and then sending their bodies home with a number instead of a name. It includes dehumanizing them. So we want to encourage everyone here to feel empowered with this knowledge, which is a little difficult. But Werner Koch, are you in the room? Could you stand up? Stay standing. Just stay standing. Stay up. And Ian Goldberg, are you in the room? I'm sorry to do this. There's Ian. And Christine Corbett. Christine Corbett, are you in the room from Signal? Stay, keep standing. Stand up, stand up. These people, without even knowing it and without even trying, they beat them.
don't, don't sit down, guys. So last night I, I screened uh, my film Citizen Four here, and there was some questions, and somebody asked, what, what, can, you, what can they do to support the, uh, the work that Snowden has done and, and the journalist? And actually what I should have said, and I didn't say in the moment, is that actually everybody should fund the work that you guys do. And I mean that, and, and because literally my work would not be possible without the work that you do. So I would like it if everybody in this room when they leave here in the next week to reach out and fund these projects. Because without these projects, the journalism that Glenn and I and Jake have done would literally not be possible. Just to, be, just to be clear, since this video will definitely be played at a grand jury against the both of us, I want to make it perfectly clear that defense of the U.S. Constitution is the supreme defense, Your Honor, and secondly, that those gentlemen had nothing to do with any of this at all. <laughs> so now, hold your applause, I'm sorry, I mean, they deserve it forever. If it wasn't for them, we did, definitely would not have made it here today. So it is free software for freedom, literally, as Richard Stallman talks about it, empowered with strong mathematics, properly implemented, that made this possible. It is not hopeless. It is, in fact, the case that resistance is possible. And in fact, I think the CCC, if I've learned one lesson from the Chaos Computer Club and this community, it's that it's mandatory that we have a duty to do something about these things, and we can do something about it. So what we need to recognize, and what I hope that we can bring to you, is that there is great risk for Laura, in particular, in making these kinds of things possible, but that we are in it together. When Julian and I gave a talk with Sarah Harrison last year, and we talked about sysadmins of the world uniting, we didn't just mean sysadmins. We meant recognize your class interests and understand that this is the community that you are a part of, at least a small part of, and that we're in it together. We need people like Christine Corbett working on Signal. We need people like Ian Goldberg breaking protocols and building things like OTR and Werner Koch. We need Adam Langley building things like Pond, but we need everybody to do whatever they can to help with these things. It requires everyone, and every skill is valuable to contribute to that. From all the people that work on Tor, to people that work on Debian, the work on free software for freedom, literally. So what we wanted to do was to say that we should align with these class interests, and that we should recognize them, and that we should work together to do that. And it is this community who can help to really change things in the rest of the world, because it is, in fact, only this community and some of the people in this room and around the world that tie into it that have blinded these people. Everyone else seems to have either gone complicitly or they have designed it incompetently and broken, and it is not good. So that is important to recognize. Every person, if you are here, you are out of a small set of people in the world, use that power wisely. Help these people to do that, and that will help us all to continue, not only to reveal these things, but to fundamentally shift and change that for everyone, for the whole planet, without any exception. So, on that note, we'd like to take some questions. Yeah.
Wow. So everybody who has a question, please stand in one of in front of one of the six microphones that are in this room. And Signal Angel, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, are there questions from the internet? Yeah, so the first one would be, uh, what should we do about SSH now? <laughs> well, uh, shall I? Yeah. I want to be clear. We don't understand. We only know what they claim. And I don't want to hype that and say that they didn't claim anything. But they do have claim. They claim it as potential. What I would say is, what about those NIST curves? What about NIST anything? The documents that we've released specifically talk about something that's very scary. They say that it is top secret in a classification guide that the NSA and the CIA work together to subvert standards. And we even released as part of the story an example of them going, the NSA that is, to an IETF meeting to enhance surveillance with regard to voice over IP. They are literally amongst us. So what do we do? First, find them. Second, stop them. Thank you. Microphone two, please. Uh, can you talk about, um, do you plan on releasing the source material eventually, or will it always be redacted? Well, yeah. some of this is already out right now without redactions, with the exception of a very few set of redactions for agents' names and things where legally we will go to prison. I mean, I'm not adverse to that, but I'd like to wait a while. <laughs> what about in 15, 20 years' time? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two questions there, is how to, the, the, scaling the reporting, which I agree needs to happen, and I, and I think it's a valid criticism, we need to do more of it. I think certain things, I think, will, I would say, should continue to be redacted, at least for the short term, which are things like, there are a lot of names, you know, email addresses, phone numbers, those kinds of specifics, I think will continue to redact, and then we're, we're working on scaling. I haven't really had time to think about 15 years from now, so, but, I, but of course, I think at some point, those questions of names, I mean, that, that becomes less of an issue, but I, but I do hear the criticism that, that we need to be doing more publishing. If we live that long, I hope you'll help us. <laughs> Next question. Next question from the internet, please. So how reliable is this source on OTR? Can that be verified with a second source somehow? Well, I think that's a really good question. Um, from what we know cryptographically, OTR, which has been analyzed by a number of people, hasn't been broken. And what it appears to be the case in these FISA intercepts alone, that that is one set of things, where they produce one set of evidence from one set of people. And there are other documents from a different section, from different agencies, that essentially say something completely the same. That is, everything we see seems to support that. And I would say, maybe Julian's not the best example of how great OTR is, but I think I am. I rely on it every day for almost all of my communications, and I feel pretty confident, which combined with this, as well as talking with people in the intelligence community who actually use OTR and PGP, amazingly enough. So I feel pretty good about it. And the most important part is that they don't have superpowers. They have back doors. For example, I really would encourage people to look at the Cavium hardware. I don't really know why, but it seems to be that they're obsessed with this. And you can look at the documents and you can see that. But look at the hardware, crypto hardware, and imagine that it's compromised. They spend tens of millions of dollars to backdoor these things, and they work with agencies around the world to make that happen. So it would make sense that OTR would be safe, actually. It doesn't interface with any hardware. 
And it would make sense because the math seems to be good and it seems to be vetted, and that seems to be their weakness. Thanks. Number four, please. Uh, hello, I have actually, I think maybe a little odd question, but I wanted to ask it anyway, um, regarding the term war on terror in general. Um, because all of these things, the torture report, um, the NSA spying, is all being done in the name of the war on terror. Even though we know a number of the people who were tortured were innocent and were in no way terrorists, um, we know torture does not work as an interrogation method, and we know a vast majority of the people who are being spied on are completely innocent and did nothing wrong. And I wanted to know if maybe we might actually be inadvertently lending an amount of credibility to the whole thing by using the term war on terror in the first place. Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, I think, right, we're talking about reconstructing narratives, and that's maybe one we should, you know, because it's really the war on, you know, pretty much everyone. And so, um, so I agree with that. Uh, I think, uh, and I stopped using it for a long time. I think I, I began reusing it, I think, when, when ne nothing changed. And in fact, I think I was one of those people that thought things would change under Obama and there would be some accountability. Like if you torture people, you're held accountable for torturing people. And then that didn't. So, um, so I, I, yeah, I agree we need a new term for that to, to describe. I mean, some people are calling it the endless war, which I hope is not, you know, doesn't, isn't actually true. Um, but, but I do think that that's a, that's a term that, you know, comes with, uh, you know, with the narrative of the, of the government. I think because I've been living in Germany for a while, I, I actually don't use the war on terror as a sentence uh, ever. I say imperialist war, because that's what it is. It's imperialist war. And it's an imperialist war on you as a person, your liberties. It's not about privacy, it's about choice. It's about dignity. It's about agency. And of course, I mean, these guys are murderers and rapists. We shouldn't dignify them. I mean, they're absolutely awful. The torture report really shows that. But it doesn't matter that torture doesn't work. That's like... A, as is often said, you know, this notion, like, well, is slavery economically viable? Who fucking cares? It's slavery. Thank you. Number one, please. Do you think, uh, since it's kind of obvious that we should reject, or mostly reject, uh, the projects that are influenced by... Um, governmental institutions like NIST, uh, do you have any information to how they react when they see that you use smaller projects like, for example, PEFs to encrypt your um, hard drive and some odd crypto scheme? Well, one of the things we found is that TrueCrypt, for example, withstands what they're trying to do and they don't like it. I really wonder if someone could figure out why TrueCrypt shut down. That would be really interesting. Uh. I can also tell you that after I met General Alexander and I told him to go fuck himself as hard as possible with the chainsaw. <laughs> I hope he's watching this video. <laughs> he, uh, he actually went to, let's say my employer who shall remain anonymous. And, um, sorry, Roger. Um, <laughs> And um, my understanding is they also went to our funders and uh, said, what's this guy? What's he doing? You know, and they tried to pressure. And my employer, who shall remain anonymous, did not cave. But yeah, they exert pressure. 
Another question from the internet, please. Yeah, so these uh, files are pretty, yeah, shocking or revealing. Um, were they part of the stuff that came out in summer last year? And uh, where was the bottleneck? Why do they come out now? Well, that's a question for you. Yeah. Um, so in, in this case, this was um, a number of reasons. One is that we've we've been slow to scale the reporting. Um, and it was also a case that some of the files I personally didn't have access to um, during that time when, when the story actually first came out. Um, and, and then also just the time of reporting and, and, and researching the documents. Number three, please. Thanks for the talk. Um, it was great. I support totally the idea that we need strong crypto. And uh, I... Uh, think that, uh, yeah, strong crypto needs all the support, we should all use it, but I think strong crypto is not the whole answer to the political situation that we have. And uh, I think... <laughs> I think that this community of hackers and, and nerds needs to um, build stronger ties with political movements and be part of political movements, I know you are, and I think that we can't solve the political dilemma with uh, just strong crypto, so we need both. Yeah. And another question from the internet? No more questions from the internet, so number three, please. Uh, yes, uh, thank you also very much for the talk. I wanted to ask a question about Citizen 4 and especially the ending of Citizen 4 where there's a strong suggestion that the uh, army base here in Germany called Rammstein is uh, essential in these killings that you addressed tonight. Um, what would be your, uh, like, are you going to give more information that's not yeah. just suggestional? Yeah. And what would you want, like, especially this audience to engage in? I mean, so it, there is going to be more reporting on that topic that I'm working with and my colleague Jeremy Scahill um, at The Intercept. Um, and I. Unfortunately, I can't say more than that, other than we will be coming out with more information that will go beyond what, what you see in the film, so for sure. And, and it de deals with how Rammstein is part of the, the infrastructure and architecture of Shut communication. Shut it down. <laughs> Number five, please. Um, is there a minimum key length that you would consider unsafe? Yeah, so actually I'm glad you asked that question. I was sort of hoping someone would do that. Okay, so there are some documents from the GCHQ where they talk about their supercomputing resources. And um, about three years ago, they were talking about, what is it, 640-bit uh, keys being something that they sort of casually take care of. Now, at the same time that that was happening, Arjen Lenstra had, I think, factored 768-bit, and it took, what was it, uh, Alex, three years? On a bunch, year and a half. So I think pretty much anything less than 1024 is a bad idea. There are other documents where they specifically say if it's 1024-bit RSA, it's a problem. But you need to think about it not about what they can do today. Um, first of all, they have different compartments. One of those compartments, obviously, is dedicated to any maths that they've got that speed that up. But another point is that because of things like the massive data repository, the mission data repository at Bluffdale, Utah, you are not encrypting for today. I mean, you are, but you're also encrypting for 50 years from today. 
So personally, I use 4096-bit RSA keys, and I store them on a hardware token, which hopefully doesn't have a backdoor, but I trust Werner. That's the best I can do, unfortunately, uh, which is pretty good. But um, <laughs> I think, for example, that the best key sizes, you need to think about them in terms of what you're actually doing and how long. And then think about composition. That is, it's not just about encrypting something with like a 4096-bit RSA key. Also make it hard for them to target you for surveillance in the first place. So for example, when you can, use systems where you can compose it with Tor. Use things that are totally ephemerally keyed so they can't break in, steal the key, and decrypt things in retrospect. Make it really hard for them to make it valuable. There's an economic point to that collection as well as a mathematical point. Actually, they sort of balance each other out. So anyway, don't use small key lengths, and maybe also consider looking at the work that DJB and Tanya have been doing about elliptic curve stuff, and I think really look to them but these guys aren't special. They don't have superpowers. But when you use things that are closed source software, I mean, Richard Stallman was really right. I mean, I know that it pains some of you to know that, but he was really right. And he deserves a lot of love for that. Free software with software implementations with large keys. That's what you want. And when you can, protocols that allow for ephemeral keying or where they have forward secrecy. Things like Pawn, things like OTR, things like Red Phone and Signal, and GNU PG. GNU PG has the caveat that if they ever get into your system later, they can, of course, decrypt other messages. So you have to consider all of that, not just key size. And GNU PG has safe defaults. So if you're choosing key sizes, hopefully you're using that. Libraries like Salt also make safe choices. So hopefully that answers your question and you use strong crypto in the future. So thank you very much for the talk. Thank you. I saw a lot of people being shocked in that room. A lot of tears of, I think, proudness and hope I saw. That gives me a really good feeling. So thank you for the talk. Give them a very warm applause. <laughs>